Amen. Let's hear it for our worship team this morning, can we? Dylan, our regular worship leader, is not feeling well. I don't know exactly what's wrong, but um, he couldn't be here today. And Brent had about a day and a half notice to do that. So thank you, Brent, for doing that at such short notice. And I'll tell you, they did a wonderful job. They really did. Um, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. We are steadily moving through the book of Hebrews, and today we are in chapter 10. And uh, I assume that it will be behind me on the screen, so if you didn't bring a Bible, you don't have a Bible, uh, you have that to refer to. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. I mean, you never know, someone may not. And uh, so we would, we, we love to give Bibles away. So um, for that now, you can have the screen, but ask me and we'll get you a Bible. Um, chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 today. Father, thank you for your word. And all I can say, Lord, is that everybody comes in here with the same needs and then with vastly different needs. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would minister to each one in a way that uh, blesses them and glorifies you. Um, bless Dylan as he's not here today and others that are not feeling well, just help them to uh, rebound and uh, get back into the saddle and get better soon. Thank you for uh, Jerry and his announcements about our pastoral search team. Lord, continue to guide them as we look for our future pastor and help them to make uh, decisions that will expedite that process and uh, but only in your time, Lord. We want to do it in your time and bless, uh, bless us with the right man at the right time for this place. We trust you for that and we trust you to speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I love the way that Charles Swindoll uh, opens the chapter on the passage we're going to study today in his commentary on the book of Hebrews and I want to read to you how he does that. He said, I've never had anybody tell me that when they get really hungry, they grab an illustrated cookbook from the shelf and thumb through recipes. If anything, ogling those masterfully prepared dishes presented in glossy, colorful prints will make someone even hungrier. And when a person is famished, even reading step-by-step how-to instructions with words like roast, baste, braise, saute, and bake, can make the mouth water. Nobody would finish flipping through a cookbook, place it on the shelf, and say, well, I'm full. Pass me the dessert recipes. Trying to be physically nourished by the recipes in a cookbook is just as foolish as trying to be spiritually satisfied by the rituals of the law and of dead traditions and of animal sacrifices and religion in general. And like the pictures in an illustrated cookbook, the law anticipates and points to something far superior, the reality of Jesus Christ's sacrifice for sin. The law made people hungry for something of real substance, something that would last, something that would finally and ultimately take away the gut-wrenching guilt of sin and soothe the conscience with mercy and grace. Looking at a recipe or a picture of something that's been cooked on a page in a cookbook 
doesn't satisfy. Having the real meal satisfies. But that's exactly what some of these first century uh, attenders of this little church in Italy were doing. That's what they were doing. Under the pressure of repeated threats of hardship and persecution for their faith, some of these professed Jewish believers were becoming fearful and weak. And they were contemplating withdrawing and going back to a legalistic system of religion and Judaism that they had come out of. They, they were thinking about going from substance to shadow, as verse 1 says of this passage. But given what Christ's one-time sacrifice had provided for them, the writer of the book of Hebrews was trying to get them, and he's trying to get us, because we're, I'll explain this later, in somewhat the same situation in our world today. He's trying to get them and us to see that it was foolishness to leave the best for something so far not the best, I guess I could put it that way. And that was Jesus' one-time sacrifice. Okay? He's saying, don't go back to rituals and sacrifices and don't go back to traditions and laws as a source of spiritual satisfaction in life. No matter how life get, rough life gets, Jesus and his one-time sacrifice is far better than that. So the title of the message today is Christ's One-Time Sacrifice. Christ's One-Time. Well, just once. One-time sacrifice. And we're going to talk about that. What, we need, what do we need to know about Christ's One-Time Sacrifice? And we're going to look at three things that kind of at least jumped out at me from this passage. Number one, the weakness of the law made Christ's one-time sacrifice necessary. The weakness of the law, the inability of the law to really satisfy our spiritual appetite made Christ's one-time sacrifice necessary. Let's look at verses one through four. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law, continual sin offerings, was only a shadow on the pictures in a recipe cookbook. Only a shadow of the good things, the real meal, the Christ's final perfect sacrifice on the cross and all that it offered. It wasn't the reality itself. Doing all of those sacrifices and obeying all those laws and traditions and rituals, that wasn't the reality. Christ in his one time, just one time, once, once only, sacrifice was the satisfaction that we all hunger for and that they hungered for. And it goes on, it says, for this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect or justify and give access to God, those who draw near to worship. In other words, God's great desire for the human race is to be reconciled to him, is to be made perfect in his eyes through Christ. Not just in the hereafter, but, but now. Endless animal sacrifices or any kind of religious behaviors for that matter won't do the trick. It won't make us perfect. It won't give us spiritual satisfaction. Otherwise, it says here, they would have stopped being offered. 
if animal sacrifices really did the trick and would have cleansed us from our guilt and our sin, then they wouldn't have continued on and on and on and on as an annual reminder. It says here in verse 3 that sacrifices that are repeated over and over again are, remind us of our remaining sins. That's the purpose of the law, to say you can't cut it. Keep trying, but it won't work. Even though the law is good, it points out our sin. It doesn't cleanse us from the guilt of our sin. Because, as verse 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So number one, just as a basic foundation um, about Christ's one-time sacrifice, the weakness of the law made Christ's one-time sacrifice necessary. Okay? You got it? So far? Okay. Number two, the willingness of Christ, however, made his one-time sacrifice possible. The weakness of the law made it necessary, but the willingness of Christ made his one-time sacrifice possible. Look at verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering, offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. And he sets aside the first to establish the second. Now, the law... The Old Testament, Old Covenant law, the Ten Commandments and such, okay, was only a shadow, as we read. Only a shadow, okay? But, and it didn't, it wasn't able to get us into right standing with God. So Christ, with a willing attitude, this is what I love about this section of verses, made the one-time sacrifice to bring us into God's presence possible. Okay, and there are three statements of willingness here. And what I want you to notice, everybody here this morning, is notice how it's not grudging obedience. Now, if I were Jesus, and don't mistake me for Jesus, by the way, if you have been lately, obviously being facetious there, but if I were Jesus, if I were Jesus, <laughs> I would go, Are you sure, God? I don't really want to do this. I'll do it, but man, I don't want to do it. I mean, my heels would be dragging all the way there. But what you see here, which is really crazy awesome, is his utter willingness to do this. Okay? Not a grudging or anything like that. Each, there's three couplets here. Three couplets of Christ's willingness to make a sacrifice, the sacrifice, to bring us into, faultlessly into God's presence, Okay? Each starts with the inadequacy of animal sacrifices or any kind of religious works to once for all atone for our sin and bring lasting satisfaction to God for our guilt and sin. And then it finishes with Christ's wonderful willingness and voluntary submission to make that once for all atoning sacrifice for us. And if we don't go out of here after this section, this uh, section number two here of Christ's willingness, if we don't go out of here with a little bit more love for Jesus, then I failed 
as uh, preaching this sermon uh, because that's what we ought to be going, wow. May I, his attitude, is Jesus' attitude, is, he's so willing. Okay, let's go to the first statement, verse five. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offering you did not desire. Sacrifices weren't enough. It wasn't satisfactory to God. It was unsatisfactory. The only thing that, it re- when, I heard, when I read, I don't know if one commentator or where I got, but that, that the law was unsatisfactory, my mind flashed back to my report cards. <laughs> I mean, the other kids' report cards, what I meant to say, not mine. No, I, did you ever get an unsatisfactory in anything? I mean, you don't, maybe it was a work evaluation and there was a section, or maybe in school, maybe you got unsatisfactory. And I don't know, just somewhere. It is depressing. Man, unsatisfactory. Mitchell does not relate well to others. <laughs> or something like that. I can't remember. That's what the law is. It's unsatisfactory. It doesn't make the grade. They weren't enough. They didn't cleanse completely or permanently from guilt or sin. But look at the first statement of willingness. Jesus says, but a body you prepared for me. And Jesus is talking here, guys. Make no mistake about it. That's who's talking to the Father. And he's saying, uh, the law can't cut it, but, but, but Father, you prepared a body and it's my body. I did a fair amount of study on this. this, is, this you have to really dig to understand what's being said here. But Jesus is saying, you spontaneously generated me in the womb of a virgin. I grew up to manhood, faultless and sinless. I went to the cross. I died as a perfect sacrifice uh, for sin. And uh, rose from the dead, ascended to your right hand, sat down, and you did that. And that was enough to uh, redeem the world of their sin. Then let's look at the second couplet here, verses 6 and 7. It says, God was not pleased with burnt and sin offerings. Ultimately, they weren't good enough. They weren't sufficient for a perfectly holy God. Okay for a time, but not ultimately sufficient. But Jesus says, hey, there's a prophecy. He says, here I, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. What's the scroll? The, the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. Now, this passage is pulled straight out of Psalm 40, where there's a prophecy of Christ. And Jesus is saying, Father, you... There is a prophet, he's talking to the Father, not like the Father didn't know the word of God, but he's saying, Father, for all those Christians at Cedar Home Baptist Church that will read the word of God, it says, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. I mean, does that sound grudging? Look at me. Does that sound grudging? It doesn't to me. It doesn't sound to me... um, then I said, here I am. It's written about me in your school. Yeah, <clears throat> oh well, I've come to do your will, oh God. And no. In fact, I read one uh, commentator on this who said, this, is, this should be described as joyous resolve. 
or exuberant determination or eagerness, not under duress, but with joy. In fact, up in chapter 12, verse 2, when we get there, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Holy cow. Joy took Jesus to the cross because he knew it would enable us to be born again and go to heaven. What kind of love is that? I'll get to that in a minute. Let's go to the third couplet here in verses 8 and 9. The third statement of Christ's willingness is found here in verse 8 and 9. And once again, animal sacrifices fall short and are unsatisfactory to God. But Christ says with willingness, Here I am. I have come to do your will. Okay? Here I am. It's, it's okay. I want to do this, Father. I want to pay for the sin of the world on the cross. Not want to that I'm a masochist, but I want to because I know the end result will be bringing your people into the kingdom of heaven. Only the perfect Christ could satisfy God at the Father's request, and he wanted to do it. And then in verse 9 it says that this willingness caused the first covenant to be set aside for the second. The old for the new. Jesus' entire life passion was to do the will of God. His entire, he, you know what he called in John chapter 4, 32 through 34? He called Jesus, God's will, Jesus called God's will his what? Food. He says, what satisfies me more than a great meal on a Sunday morning after church or any other time? The food that satisfies me so much is God's doing, God's will. Let me read that to you in John 4. The, uh, the disciple said, or he said to the disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have bought food? him food my food said jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work the moment metaphorically that jesus toe touched the ground through his incarnation the moment his toe touched that ground in mary and then on to the cross the moment his toe touched the ground his passion was his food was i want to do the will of god i really do I really want to do the will of God. He said it just before he was arrested and, and, and beaten and went through his suffering in Luke twenty two thirty nine. 39. Maybe I should read that. Luke twenty two thirty nine 39 through 42. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him and on reaching the place he said, to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And what does it say after that? Yet what? Not my will, but yours be done. Even in that, that awful moment, he wanted to do God's will. He was going to do God's will. Not, not grudgingly, but willingly to do his will. And I thought about that this week, you guys, and I thought, does he, does he love me that much? Does the Father love me that much? You know? I mean, don't we all sometimes grapple with that when we go through 
you know, valleys and, and trials, when we, when we feel alone. Have you ever felt alone in a big crowd? We can feel alone. We can feel alone sitting next to our best friend or our spouse or, or in church. We can feel alone. And we wonder sometimes, am I all alone in my circumstances? Am I alone in my feelings? And then you read something like this, and that, listen, the Father was so willing, and Jesus was so utterly willing to, to, to come here and do what he did on the cross for us. Not just do it, but do it willingly. Does it, if you believe this, say amen after I'm done. Doesn't this really clarify how much God loves us? I mean, Wow so willing he wanted to do the will of the father and maybe maybe we ought to be the same way it's a good lesson for us i've i gotta i'm gonna admit my hypocrisy here i've never woken up in the morning and said and have my first thought be i want to do the will of the father i want to do the will of the father have you ever have you ever thought that when you first got maybe you have that tuned in um but i think that Jesus provides, doesn't he, guys, a good example? I mean, that, again, it doesn't have to be the same words, or it could just be an attitude, but getting out of bed, and I don't know about you, that's when I read my Bible and pray, because if this is me, that you, much, you probably are way more disciplined than I am, but if I don't spend time with God pretty much right away, <laughs> you know what the results are, don't you? They're not good. I mean, there's times when circumstances get in the way and you, you, you maybe have to be somewhere super early or, or you're not feeling well or um, whatever. I mean, there's, there's certainly legitimate reasons why we don't get to be with the Lord uh, on a certain basis, but that's when I do that. And that's, I think, when... I want, and I want you, and I want us to begin to say, Father, I want to do your will. I want to do your will today. Help me to do your will today, just like your son did for me. Amen? What a great way to live for Christ. Okay, let's go to the last one here. The last one here. What do we need to know about Christ's one-time sacrifice? Well, the weakness of the law, listen now, and when I say weakness of the law, I mean and this is important, how fortunate we are to be in this church and have the theology that we have. Because we don't believe that you can get to heaven by works, do we? It has to come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how one gets to heaven. Not by getting a perfect attendance uh, pin for Sunday school class or a church attendance. Not by helping little old ladies across the street. Those, that's a good thing to do. Or pastors with bad backs across the street, you know. Or, you know, uh, it, it's not by religion. It's not by doing good stuff. We don't get to heaven by, by religion. Our, our version of religion, their version was animal sacrifices in the law. Or our version, just being good people. Good people. Is good, being good good enough for heaven, everybody? No, it's not. No one's good enough. Okay, 
No religion is good enough. How many religions in the world today are based on the fact or on the premise of doing enough to get into heaven? So many. So many deceived, thinking the scale of good will outweigh the scale of bad. No, no. Any kind of law or religion, not good enough. The weakness of the law made the sacrifice of Christ, one-time sacrifice of Christ, necessary. And the willingness of Christ, how willing he was for us. We can go out, out of here on our toes, tippy toes, or even a couple of inches off the ground knowing how willing God was to die for me. Just out and out willing, that made his one-time sacrifice possible. And then the last thing here today, the work of Christ, of Christ's one-time sacrifice, made our perfection, yes, you heard me say it, our perfection final. Our perfection while we're here now, and our perfection when we get to heaven, when we lose these achy, mortal bodies. Okay, now, in these last eight verses here, there are four accomplished results of Christ's one-time sacrifice. So let's, let's read them. Um, starting in verse 10. And you see, these are the results of his one-time sacrifice. Starting in verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which could for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I'll write, my, write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Now, there are four accomplished results of Christ's one-time sacrifice. Number one, in verse 10, it says that we, and get the tenses here, the tenses are important, we have been made holy. We have been made holy. It's a done deal through Christ's sacrifice. In the Greek language, the, the word holy here is in what's called the perfect tense, and I'm by no means a Greek scholar. I know enough Greek to get me in trouble, basically. But it's in the perfect tense, which means enduring, an enduring permanent state. The moment we were saved, we were made holy in the eyes of God. And it, it kind of says, it doesn't kind of say, it says once for all in verse 10. The Greek word is hagios. It means separated out. Separated to God. Our holiness before God is once and for all timeless. I mean, think of the incredible implications of each word of this verse, verse 10. We, every believer, the moment of salvation, have been made, past tense, holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's how we appear in the presence of the Lord now. And we may not feel holy or act holy or look holy. We may not drive holy. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, sometimes we don't talk holy, do we? 
we, we just don't, we aren't holy. In our conduct, we're not holy perfectly, but in God's eyes, we are. And then the second accomplished result of Christ's one-time sacrifice, there are four. A second one is our what? Perfection. My favorite verse in the book of Hebrews. I finally come to it, okay? I finally come to it. Verse 14. Well, I'll start. Yeah, I'll say it in verse 14. But because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Okay? Now, he talks about, in verse 11, about the daily sacrifices that aren't good enough. Okay? And then it talks about Christ in verse uh, 12, about that he made his atonement on the cross and then rose from the dead and sat at the right hand of God, finalizing the atonement. The Old Testament priests could not sit down because there was no place to sit down. They had to continually offer sacrifices. It never ended. Christ sat down. He sat down. Can you say that with me? He sat down. It's done. Our sin is gone in God's eyes. He sat down. It's over. No, no matter what. He sat down. It's final. And then it says, this is beautiful, beautiful verse. Uh, oh, and well, verse 13, sorry. He's waiting for the final judgment to judge all evil and make all his enemies his footstool. That's next on the prophetic calendar. But know what's good for us now, verse 14. Because by one sacrifice, he has, say it together with me, made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Is that what it says up there? No, it does not? Well, fooey on that version. <laughs> Can you put verse 14 up there? Or... Made perfect for you? Yes, it does. Oh, it wasn't there. Oh, okay. You faked me out really good. Let's say it made perfect forever. Made perfect forever. Just roll around in that. Take a bath in it. Soak up in it. You're perfect in the eyes of God. Now, in behavior, we're being made holy, right? Now, we are holy in God's eyes, but in our conduct, in our, it's called sanctification, we're being made holy in this verse. Are you getting it so far? But we have been made perfect. Perfect. Perfect in God's eyes. We're perfect. Because of one, Christ's one-time sacrifice, those of us who are saved and are going through the spiritual growth process as Christians, we've already been made holy, right? But we've already been made perfect forever. Oh, how we need to know this and how Satan wants to keep us from knowing it. Christ's work has been applied to us and we're perfect in God's eyes. We're in, listen, go back to Romans 8 if you want, not now, but we're, we are now in in the sight of God, we are now in our, lesson glorified state. If Colossians 3.1, if you have then been risen with Christ, we're risen with Christ. Colossians 1, 21 through 23, he has made us holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Do, do you see yourself as perfect in God's eyes? I mean, it's hard. I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I do much, but we are. 
The moment we're saved, we're wrapped up into the perfections of Christ. God sees us as he sees Jesus Christ. Gnaw on that for a while. And I, I want to go get a little psychobabble on you. Not really. I think this understanding by the Holy Spirit, because that's the only way we can understand it, that we're perfect in God's eyes, is the great cure. The great cure for many human problems and stresses and situations and hang-ups. I mean, how, listen, at, let me ask you a question. How would you change if you knew by the Holy Spirit, really knew in the center of your spiritual being that God has made you perfect in Christ? How would that change us? Think about, think about if you have a poor self-image or, or you're a people pleaser or a perfectionist or you have some, and we all have some, something. Maybe the opposite of that. I don't know. But think about what knowing our perfection in Christ uh, would do for us. It frees us from the slavery to human opinion. From people pleasing. Perfectionism. Don't raise your hand, raise your heart. Any perfectionists here? I want you, after what I say, I want you to say, hi, Mitch, okay? Okay, on three, when I say, I'm a perfectionist. Just pretend we're at a perfectionist 12-step meeting. (laughs) Hi, I'm Mitch, and I'm a perfectionist. I'll say it, I'll admit it. That's why I don't do very much, because it has to be perfect, you know? Think about that. Um, You know what the cure for perfectionism is? Perfection! But not ours. Whose? Christ's. He is the answer. This is why this stuff is not a dusty coffee table subject. Oh, we're going to talk about the atonement today. No, it has practical implications for everything. If I know in the eyes of God that he has made me perfect in Christ, um, great things happen. And I'm learning that I don't have to be perfect because I'm already perfect in the eyes of God. Not by my doing, right? That don't work. But by his doing. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's the middle of August. Half the people that are here are gone vacationing. We're all here going, I want to go home. You know, but you're perfect. And, and it improves relationships. You're going to love this. And I realize that uh, I've only got a, a little bit of time left, but I really want to give this to you. It improves our marriages when we know this. It improves uh, our parenting, our dealing with difficult personalities without, without taking things too personally. It makes us less defensive when we know who we are in Christ. Okay, it helps us deal with our failures and our inadequacies and regrets without taking them out on ourselves or on our others. Why? And this is the answer. Why? Why does it affect our relationships and our, our, hand, our maladies and our difficulties? Because it removes self from the equation. And it replaces it with our perfection in Christ. Isn't it interesting and fascinating how utterly practical the one-time all-atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross applied to our lives really is? I think about marriage, just marriage. 
when we are full of Christ and our understanding of our perfection of him, we are less demanding on our marriage partner to provide what only Christ can provide. And our sense of self doesn't get caught up in the conflict. And so we're freer in our marriage or any other relationship, okay? Any other relationship. When our sense of self doesn't get dragged into the conflict because we understand our perfect standing in Christ before God, we are much freer to be able to find solutions because our sense of self doesn't get dragged into the battle. Can I get an amen? I mean, what a great way to be married. What a great way to have friendships. What a great way to be in the church when there is difficulties and there are stresses and there are different opinions. How do we get along? How do we get along? We get full of Jesus. And we get full of our identity being in Christ and then we don't, our self doesn't get dragged into the conflict. I mean, think about it. Are you guys tracking with me? I hope you are. Because this is, this is our perfection of, in Christ is to be our value source, not being right. And, and, and also this, how would this change our attitude about purposefully walking into sinful thoughts or behaviors knowing we're perfect before God? If I'm thinking about walking into a sinful thought or behavior and I realize he's made me perfect in Christ, would I really want to do that? He's been so kind to me. I am, I'm a blood-bought, born-again, raised, Christ-indwelled, perfect in his eyes, child of God. How could I think those things? How could I do those things on purpose? I'm not going to do them. I'm not going to. So you say some people might say, hey, I'm perfect. I'm going to go do what I want to do. I, I wonder if they're even saved if they could say that. Okay. I better go to the last two and then we'll close. A, th- a third uh, ac- accomplishment of Christ's one-time sacrifice is inner empowerment. Verse 15 and 16, the Holy Spirit says, and then it tells us that he, he indwells us. He brings the law into our hearts supernaturally and writes them on our minds. The accompl- uh, one of the great accomplishments of Christ's one-time sacrifice is the promised indwelling of the Holy Spirit, prophesied in uh, Jeremiah 33. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, last, the fourth accomplished result. You obviously know I'm, I'm running a little bit faster, but the last accomplished result of Christ's one-time sacrifice is permanent forgiveness. I mean, this is, this is like a banquet today, isn't it? This is like an all-you-can-eat, you know, you take your pick, wherever, you know. It says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice. Christ's one-time sacrifice um, guarantees that our sin, past, present, and future, have been forgiven with the result that no additional sacrifice for sins is needed. You don't need to walk on broken glass or crawl on broken glass after you sin and punish yourself because there's no longer any need for any sacrifice for sin because Christ has done it. It's just confess and move on. 
Who, does anybody know who Clara Barton is? Clara Barton? Who? Well, I know you would know because you worked for the Red Cross. But Does anybody but Don and Sally know who Clara Barton is? Okay, I gave it away. She was the founder of the Red, American Red Cross. And she was reminded one day of a vicious deed that someone had done to her years before. But she acted as if she had never even heard of the incident. And, so, and someone said, don't you remember it, her friend asked. No, came Barton's reply. I distinctly remember forgetting it. <laughs> Don't ask me how an all-knowing God can forget our sin, but he does. He can pull it off. Now, um, this is my closing statement today, and then we'll, we'll be off, okay? As Christianity get, is getting less popular, right? If you don't see it, then... It's getting less popular worldwide. I personally think the spirit of Antichrist is rising. I don't know when and how things are going to turn out ultimately for you and me and the timing of it, but I do sense that Christianity is becoming less popular. This is what we need to hear when there's the temptation to get discouraged, like these uh, believers in Italy or professed believers in Italy did or to slip backwards into some kind of pseudo-Christianity or religiousness or just a living by good works or even turning back into pagan living. I read an article about a guy that was on fire born again believer, wrote best-selling novel and now he's giving seminars on how to deconstruct your religion. Couldn't believe the, the, the article. Poor guy. I think that to hear this stuff says, you know, I don't want just to look at the recipes in the cookbook. I want the real meal. And I'm going to stay there no matter what hand I'm given. And some of us will be, it's just the way I want to be. Okay? And that's what the writer's saying. Don't, don't back down. Don't, don't bogue out. Don't bail out. What you have in Christ, one-time sacrifice, is way better. It's way better than that dead religious stuff. Even if it's going to cost you some hurt and pain, stick with it. Okay? Don't, don't be satisfied with just the illustration, the law. Stay with the real meal, his one-time sacrifice, and do his will willingly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the writer and how he talks to these people and how he's trying to stimulate them to realize all that they have and why would they give it up? But to do God's will willingly, like he did. Jesus did. Father, thank you for the privilege, the utter privilege of what Christ has done for us, who we are in Christ. I feel like I've just barely even scratched the surface personally as well as preaching. But it's there. It is there. And so, Lord, just thank you for that and help us to, uh, to enjoy it, freshly fall on us through the Holy Spirit so we can understand all that Christ's one-time sacrifice has done and help us to wake up tomorrow with a desire to willingly do your will. And if, Father, if there's someone here today that just has no understanding of what I just said, they, they, maybe they're not a Christian, but they, they're thinking, it sounds really good. I really want that. 
Help them to come to faith in you, Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.